This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer, solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement of any particular security, product, or service. For more information, visit assetbuilder.com. From the Asset Builder headquarters in Dallas, Texas, welcome to Keep It Simple, a show that discusses simple techniques and philosophies to help de-stressify investors around the world. I'm your host, Jared Herzog, and welcome to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Keep It Simple podcast. We're going to be continuing our segment on the review of the book, The Psychology of Money. We want to give it its proper allotment because we just can't stop talking about this book. We can't uh, stop hyping up this book, really. So we're, we're really excited about it. I'm here with Adam Morris. My name is Joey Bodinger. Again, soft G, because we, we had a little bit of a debate and a lesson before this, uh, before this recording of how to say my last name. So for everyone out there, it's Bodinger. Spelt completely different, but it is Bodinger. So yeah, and we got Renee behind the camera. Again, we'll we'll get her on the camera eventually, but she's back here helping us helping us out today. Yep. I'm gonna get it down. I'm sure I, I see more reps. Bodinger. 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 How's yeah, that sound? That sounds that right, sounds we're liking it. Exactly on on cue. All right, good. Yeah. So as you said, we're gonna be doing part three today of our breakdown of psychology of money. Um really enjoyed this one. I'm glad that we're we're getting to do it. Mm-hmm. Um we we ended the last episode on chapter 10 which is talking about saving money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to pick up today with chapter 11. So um, kind of tee it off. This is a conversation about reasonable versus rational. So walk mm-hmm. us through that. Yeah, so uh, I think, and I'm, I'm pretty confident this is the, the where the book talks about, uh, I think it was some, some studies, some guys from like Princeton did this review of if you had a portfolio that consisted of mutual funds that were double leveraged, AKA when the market was up, they were up double. When the market was down, they were down double. Um, But if you had that over the long period of time, you would come out even better. However, um, even though that is completely rational, right? They have the studies, they have the, the data behind that way of thinking and that kind of, that model that they made. Um, People can't withstand that because that's way too big of a roller coaster. So it's not reasonable for people. Like you're not going to be able to sleep at night. Um, and not many people can do that. I, I mean, I would say I'm a pretty um, risky-ish person when it comes to my investments. Like right now with me being so young, my time, hi- time horizon being so long, I'm very comfortable being a 90-10. I'm, I'm very comfortable being with having a portfolio that'll go on a little bit more of a roller coaster um, than say a more secure portfolio like a 60-40. But... I don't think I am comfortable enough to do a double leveraged, um, a double leveraged portfolio like that. So again, it's it's that concept between, even though that's rational, um, it's not reasonable for people, and that's where you kind of want to have that portfolio of what what helps people sleep at night. And that's something that asset builder that we kind of hit on a lot is we want to have a portfolio uh, or give people a portfolio that is going to allow them to not be up at night while the market's not having a good time, right? So, so yeah. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, it's a really fundamental point. Um, I, there's a story that comes to mind. I, I, I may have talked about this on the podcast before, but it's one that I use to clients all the time because it's informative. Uh, there's a guy named Peter Lynch who was appointed <laughs> um, to run the Magellan Fund. This is a pretty famous story in investing circles. Pretty famous name. Yeah. 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 Um, he managed the Magellan Fund at Fidelity for many years. I want to say it was like 16 or 17 years. Mm-hmm. And during his time running the fund, it returned 29.2% on an annual basis. It was more than double what the S&P returned over that same time. 
which is nuts. That's like that's, nuts. that's that's incredible. And and the reason we know his name is because because that's such an outlier. That is, yeah, it's such an outlier. Anyway, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a very good point. And so he got a lot of recognition. It's a very famous story for that reason. But interestingly, a couple of years ago, they went back and looked at that that fund, and they looked at actual investors. Right, it's one thing for the fund to return. Yeah. to that level over yeah. that time period. But they went back and did a meta-analysis of actual investors in that fund and the average investor in the fund actually had negative returns. Wow. And so it kind of begs the question, well, why is that, right? And basically, and, and this is kind of a corollary to like, if God was an investor, right? Like even he wouldn't beat the market. Yeah. And what they found was the actual timing of the inflows and the outflows for individual investors was exactly what you would expect if you've spent any time at all studying behavioral finance, right? Which is this idea that what would actually happen was the fund itself, Magellan Fund, would post, let's say, a banner year, right? So let's say they they had a 35% return year. Well, other investors would see that. Chances are it would have beat their investment. So they would sell whatever they're doing. They would pile into Magellan Fund at the beginning of the next year. And then because they just had a massive year of outperformance, statistically, they were primed to have a year of underperformance. So they would have that 35% year, people would pile money into the fund, and they would underperform, right? And then all those people that just entered the fund would pile out of the fund because the fund underperformed and they'd go chase the next thing. So what the fund is doing over time is not really relevant. It's how am I doing sitting in that fund, right? So it wasn't just enough to be in the Magellan Fund. You had to be willing to sit in the Magellan Fund because again, like we've talked about, that annualized return is not a steady 29% every single year. If you're getting 29% return, you are volatile, right? Like fundamentally. Absolutely. So the, the idea is, it's it's not just enough to have a good investment set, right? If we just want to aim for the highest expected return, we'd have portfolios of 100% emerging markets, maybe some emerging small cap, small cap growth. You can't do that because investors can't stomach it. So you have to build a portfolio that is the highest possible return while allowing you to sleep at night. That's yeah. kind of the, the needle you're trying to thread. Yeah, and I mean, and it's I, I think we were talking on a call earlier last week or something like that of how returns and risk they are I, I don't know I can't remember the word you use for inextricably it, but inextricably yeah there you go inextricably related like they, they will always be there right the more the more reward you're going to get the more risk you're probably taking yep and there's and if anyone's telling you otherwise if anyone's telling you like get rich quick with no risk red flags yeah. so uh, yeah the yeah. harder it is yeah. to see that risk yeah the bigger your concern should be, the the more yeah. hes- hesitant you should be to get involved, right? Like, yeah. It should be pretty easy to see. Higher expect return, higher standard deviation, higher alpha, whatever the case may yeah. be, right? If someone's tell- trying to sell you something that is hiding that risk, that is what they're doing. They're hiding it somewhere. Yeah. Right? It's not gone. They're just yeah. offloading it or changing who's taking that risk. Right? Exactly, yeah. So I, I think it's, I mean, it's a pretty simple, simple concept that we probably don't need to belabor. I think a lot of people probably already understand this, but just know if you are comparing, I think probably where this shows up most to the average retail investor um, is, you know, Morningstar or looking at Google Finance and just comparing tickers. And this simple thing that most people do is they'll look at, you know, show me the one, three, five, maybe if they're better than average 10-year returns. And they just look at it and go, well, that return's higher than that return. Give me the higher return thing. It's, that is way too simplistic and not a good method to go about it because typically speaking, the thing with the higher return probably has a higher volatility associated mm-hmm. with it. So you need to dive down to that next level. And the fact of the matter is, most people probably aren't going to do that. 
unless they just happen to enjoy investing and money management. So that's why investors typically outperform average investors, right? It's not because we're smarter, but we have some secret sauce or some knowledge other people don't. It's because we've understood that one lesson is mm-hmm. a, a negative returns with an investment does not indicate a bad investment. Yeah. Right. So I think yeah. it's, a, it's a good point. Let's move on to chapter 12. Yeah. Uh, title of this one is Surprise, um, which I find it was, as he was writing this book, I think COVID was happening. I think he references COVID a few times. Um, and just saying how history is a study of change, right? And um, But it is ironically used as a map of the future all the time. And yep. he says, things that have never happened before happen all the time. And mm. I just, I love That's that such saying. A good line. Because even like when I first came and became an advisor, I just kept hearing clients say, well, this time's different. Well, this time's different. Well, they also said that in, in the 19, I believe, 70s when the oil embargo was going on, like in, when, when um, inflation was at, I mean, it's high now, but it was oh, yeah. wildly high. I mean, oh, yeah. it was higher then, you know? Double so digits. And again, it's just like, well, this time's different, this time's different. But however, investments have still continued to climb. Like the economy has still expanded. We've still grown and it happens all the time. It can't be used as a step-for-step roadmap of the future, right? Historians are not prophets. They're not going to tell you exactly what's going to happen in the future. They can tell you like, yeah, statistically, and it's good to, to, to have that knowledge, but it's not also a guarantee by any means of what's going to happen in the future. So yeah, like be ready for surprises. That's yeah. I mean, I, I think that line is so insightful because I think what people run into is this idea that, well, it's happened before, but this one's different. Like that's the notion that we hear day to day, right? It's, well, this thing is different. We've never seen geopolitical risk like this, or we've never seen inflation occur because of this. Like this one is going to be the one, mm-hmm. right? And I think, again, if you look at history, it's, it's proved just incorrect thinking. Like new stuff happens all the time. Now you could argue, well, there's nothing new under the sun. And I would argue you could, you could categorize all forms of risk under the same basket of categories, right? So there's mm-hmm. geopolitical risk, interest rate risk, legislative risk. Um, there, there's all kinds of risk. And the things that we see happen today can all be categorized that way. But the the unique mix of different types of risks that we're facing at any given point are novel. That's certainly true, right? So maybe today, the amount of geopolitical risk we're seeing, right, with maybe the war in Ukraine mixed with the inflationary pressures we're seeing in, in the homeland, like, that's fair. Maybe yeah. that's the first time we've seen something like that, but it's certainly not the first time that capital markets have been tested with either one mm-hmm. of those those risk types. Yeah. So I think it's just, and, and even to play devil's advocate, like, the amount of I would say assumption and maybe even arrogance that is being, uh, uh, that is involved with thinking that you're right Mm -hmm. to make that call is pretty astounding. I mean, yeah, sure. Maybe at some point in, in time, someone will make that prediction and they'll be right, but it's unlikely that it's today. Yeah. Right. Like it's unlikely that this is a novel amount of volatility. This is a novel amount of risk and that markets are going to cease to, to function as they have, mm-hmm. right? So I think just getting used to that feeling. I, I was on, I, I met with another, uh, with a client on Friday afternoon and we were talking largely. It, it wasn't like necessarily, a, you could tell that he just had a lot of worries and this mm-hmm. meeting was just kind of an airing out of mm-hmm. all these worries, right? And you get used to that as an advisor, kind of giving someone like a lot of runway and just saying, hey, like, just let me hear all of it, right? And you just kind of take them one, one, you know, down the list and just address them. It doesn't mean they're not valid concerns, but just, hey, 
here are the steps we've taken. Here's mm-hmm. where we've seen this before in history. Here's what we think is probably likely, right? Here's what the data tells us. And what I told him, and he felt much better after the conversation, as most people always do, whether you're talking about your money concerns with your advisor, your family concerns with your therapist, or mm-hmm. your kid concerns with your spouse. Like human beings, we just feel a lot better after saying out loud what we're thinking. What I told him was, remember how you're feeling right now. Like the way that you're feeling right now is going to happen again. Mm-hmm. Right. And the way that he felt, what what he was saying was he was so glad that he was diversified because when Silicon Valley Bank went down, it represented almost, you know, uh, such a small effect as to be unrecognizable in his portfolio. Yeah. And I was trying to just explain to him, remember that. Like, remember this the next time there's something that happens that makes you feel fearful or anxious. Like, remember the impact that had your portfolio. It, it was minimized. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you didn't feel it, but it means it was, we took the steps we could to mitigate that that risk. Yeah. And that's what we're always doing moving forward. So I think it's just really important to become a student to some degree of history and to educate yourself on what markets have done in the past because I say all the time, like we got through World War II. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We yeah. got through Vietnam. Like we've been through a lot of heavy stuff yeah. and have come out the other side of it. Whether talking about American markets or global markets, like we figured it out. People yeah. are pretty resilient. Yeah. Necessity breeds ingenuity. And that's what has always happened. Um, And I think one of the favorite lines is the majority of what's happening at any given moment in the global economy can be tied back to a handful of past events that were nearly impossible to predict. No one saw COVID coming. And that's what the cause of our inflation right now. That's right. Right. And that's like the number one thing in the market going on. Aside from obviously the war in Ukraine, there's, I mean, there's a few other things, but I mean, that's what but that and the, the interest rate adjustments yeah. to that are the kind of the underlying yeah. tailwind. And, and, and no one could have seen that coming. That's right? right. So that's why we can't always you 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 can again have a have a portfolio tying back to chapter eleven, have a portfolio that's reasonable for you. Um and 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 then also be ready for surprises, like be that's ready right. for things that you can't predict. That's why you have a reasonable portfolio so that you can get through those things that you can't predict. So Exactly. Yeah. All right. Good with chapter 12? Anything else? I think I think so. I just think it's... I just love... There is... He has a list in the book that's like 9-11. Couldn't predict that. COVID. Couldn't predict that. And then there was a, a bunch of other things oh, that yeah. he predicted. And it was just like, it's a very good point. You know? Exactly. Uh, the things that affect the economy the most are things that we can't predict at all. So... Couldn't yeah. agree more. All right. Let's move on to chapter 13. It's called Room for Air. And this one is... Uh-huh. I mean, so many of these are like... On their face, they seem like, well, kind of duh. But at the same time... <laughs> So many of the most powerful concepts in life are duh, but that doesn't mean they're easy to implement. Yeah. And most of the times, like, I mean, people don't go to church necessarily to learn something new every time. It's more to be reminded of what you already know. Exactly. That's the same. It's kind of this. That's what this, I mean, this book does a really good job yeah. of like, I guess I already knew that, but it's nice to, nice to see read it played it. out. Right. Yeah. So the concept of this chapter is this idea that you know that your, your plan isn't going to go exactly how you think it will. Mm-hmm. Right. Like when you set out on a long journey, you think you know the route you're going to take. You think you know where you're going to stop for gas. You think you know where you're going to you know, take lunch breaks, whatever the case. But typically, it doesn't go exactly according to that plan. And investing or your financial plan in general is no different. And so building in a strategy that can account for that, like building in a strategy that isn't fully dependent on our ability or your ability to predict that path perfectly mm-hmm. is super key. Oh, yeah. Right. I think for us, the main way, this is really oversimplified, but the main way that we do that is diversification. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. it's plain and simple. I mean, literally, we, we were on the phone, what day was it? Wednesday or Thursday of last week. You had mm-hmm. a meeting with a prospective client and they had 
essentially like a handful of ticker symbols, individual mm-hmm. ticker symbols in a bag thrown in with yeah, some other package products. Scared me. I mean, it was alarming, right? Yeah. Like you sent me the Excel sheet and I think it was like 13 or 14 positions. That was yeah. the entire portfolio, right? Talk about centralized risk. Yeah. Talk about needing to be right on those decisions because if you're not, it could spell disaster. Yeah. Diversification is the most simple way to combat that, right? And that's yeah. why we're so, I mean, literally we went through the numbers. I think it was like 14,000 positions Yeah. In, if, in the recommended allocation that you were sending. Yeah, based off, based, I think I think it's number, it's somewhere like this, are the models that we have most almost all of our clients in yeah. are has a total of fourteen thousand different holdings. companies, yeah, different yeah. holdings. So again, why SBV or SVB was That's right. minimized? If one of fourteen thousand, it's right. gonna and you compare yeah. that with fourteen, yeah, like yeah. the amount of exposure you have centralized across a small number of holdings is unbelievable at that level. Mm-hmm. So I think you know, rooted in that, we talk a lot about humility mm-hmm. on this podcast, right? Like rooted, understanding that you're going to be wrong. Whatever mm-hmm. plan you have, we know by default that it's not going to go that way. You're yeah. going to be wrong somewhere. So the goal is to acknowledge that, right? To minimize the size of the corrections you'll need to make, right? So to try to get a plan that's as close to we think accurate as can be, but then having flexibility built in. Yeah. The purpose of margin of safety is to render the forecast unnecessary is, again, one of my favorite quotes from mm-hmm. this chapter. And that's just basically saying, like if you have a forecast and it's, it's nice to have forecasts, don't get me wrong. Like I, we don't rely on them, but um, it's nice to have them, but to be dependent on them is when it gets dangerous, right? Because if, because yep. we know that forecasts are not going to go exactly as planned, right? They might be better, which would be great, uh, but there's a good chance they'd also be worse than what they forecasted. And if you can ba- look at a forecast and be like, okay, if this forecast plays out, that'll be great, but I don't need it to in order to reach my goal. That's right. right? And that's what the margin of safety is about. And that's why we why we uh, have reasonable portfolios. That's why we have diversification because we don't have to be dependent on a forecast. That would be terrifying. Way Absolutely. To live and so, a terrifying way to invest. I, I like what, you, what, what was written here. Having a gap between what you can technically endure versus what's emotionally possible is an overlooked version of room for error. Mm-hmm. So it's an overlooked version of this concept, right? So you could, you could build the plan that is the the highest possible ceiling. Like this is, I, I could grow my assets to this level, right? I could spend this amount of money. Yeah. I could, you know, um, set aside this much for my kids, whatever, whatever the item is that you're looking at. But to achieve that, again, it gets back to, you're going to have to, you're, you're going to be on that razor's edge, right? Yeah. With, with risk. And so understanding, I need to have room for error too in what I'll be able to stomach. Right. Mm-hmm. So maybe that means lowering the highest potential outcome yeah. and, and achieving a little bit below what I technically mathematically could to build in that room for error for yourself to say yeah, you're you're tringing that standard deviation. Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. What am I going to be able to emotionally, you know, get through? Yeah. Right. And, and I think being aware of your time horizon has a lot to do with that. Yeah. Right. Being yeah. aware of your own experiences as it relates to investing, right? Mm-hmm. Someone that's lived through 2000, 2008, 2020, they're going to have a different perception of what their own risk capacity is versus yeah. someone that just started investing a year ago, right? Or mm-hmm. someone that's been investing for 50 years. So um, I think it's a really important concept to just leave yourself some wiggle room, right? Yeah, in all areas. And that's one of those, when I think we did a, we did a podcast of like good questions to ask your, your, new advisor or an advisor uh, and then also good questions for an advisor to ask a client and i think one of my favorites is what what did you how did you react in 2008 because yeah. it kind of helps me gauge like what can you stomach right and i want to make sure but at the same time having your portfolio grow enough to meet your goals or or function in the way that we want it to in order to 
reach your goals, but I want to make sure that you can stomach that, you know? That's right. I'm not just going to, I'm not just going to chuck you in a 90, 10 or 100% equities and be like, you should be fine, you know? And like, yeah. But if they pull out, kind of like Magellan Fund, if they pull out halfway through or way too yeah. early on, they're not going to get the return. You've of, compounded the yeah. problem. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely, it, it kind of a callback to that, um, or to earlier of you just have to have a reasonable portfolio, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to, and it's also something that we, we've done before. Uh, you showed me this last week of running like Monte Carlo situation, simulations, which if you don't know, if you listen to this podcast, you don't know what Monte Carlo is. It's just basically doing a, a bunch of scenarios and seeing what like all these different possibilities that could happen. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is using forecasting to an extent. Um, it's, it's using historical data to kind yeah. of build in the, some of the assumptions that you can make yeah. for the ranges of outcomes. Yeah. But it's better than doing nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And again, but, but even then, when we do that, we're not, we're not living, living according to that as gospel. No, right? Like no, this no, no, is something yeah. to inform the decision making process, but you also have to understand that there are tail risks that yeah. could present themselves. Yeah. Cause I think like it goes and in the, in the, in the one that we use, it has like a 10% percent. Like if your portfolio does awful, mm-hmm. you will still end up with this much money or it'll run out at this point. Um, but even then that could be wrong, That's you right. know? And so you just kind of have to be able to be like, okay, obviously this is not the most likely thing to happen, but it could happen. And I need to be ready for that. So that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. All right, let's move on. Chapter 14. It's called you'll change. And I think this was, you know, you've read this more recently than I have mm-hmm. reading back to, I think this was one of my, one of the more enjoyable, it's, it was a little lighter, but yeah. I, I thought it was, it wasn't so heavy in like the financial concepts, but I thought it was very potent nonetheless. So walk us through what he, what he discusses. Man, um, I'm, I'm going to have to reread these notes a little bit to make sure I've, I've got a, a full grasp of it. One of the main things is people, not, not only are forecasts of financials bad, we are bad at forecasting our future selves, right? I mean, I am not the same person. My wife is very thankful for this. I am not the same person I was my freshman year of college, mm-hmm. right? And I, I could not have predicted that I was going to end up in Texas as a financial advisor, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, and I don't, I didn't know that I was going to be react this way to the market when this said thing happened, right? That's kind of what we're getting at. That's what these examples are for. And we're going to, people change. They yeah. do change. And their attitudes, attitudes towards money change, especially as you get older. Like, I don't have kids right now. So my, yeah. my view of finances is definitely different than when I will have kids or hopefully have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's going to change. It's going to change when I get close to retirement. I might have a, oh crap moment. I don't want to. I, that's what I'm planning now to not have, but like I might have that and I might get way more risk averse. Uh, and we just, people tend to be bad at projecting their future selves. I'll, I'll, I'll end there. I want to hear what you have to say on that one. Well, I mean, no, I, I agree completely. An analogy kind of pops in my mind, right? Because I think a lot of people, this is where having a regular schedule to, and again, if you're working with an advisor, they're doing this for you, or at least they mm-hmm. should be. But if they're not, and I think a lot of people that listen to us are not currently working with an advisor, mm-hmm. is they'll they'll look at all their stuff maybe on January 1st, and then they might go one or two or maybe even three years before looking at it again. And then they helicopter back in in a totally different frame of mind, a totally different you know, yeah. state of life or circumstances have changed and they make a set of decisions based on those things. Mm-hmm. And then a year or two years down the road, they come back in and look at it again and make a decision based on their frame of mind at that point in time. And mm-hmm. you know, as we do change through time, like the, the way we make decisions and the, the mood that we're in when we make those decisions, all those things can impact what the outcome is, right? Like what the final choice yeah. is. And so having a, first of all, being aware of the mood that you're in and kind of the frame of mind that you're in when you're making these mm-hmm. decisions, but also doing it regularly enough to where you're kind of capturing 
who you really are yeah. in that time. And At least the changes aren't as drastic. Right? That's the swings right. are not as wild. That's yeah. right. And hopefully building something that isn't subject to, like, so again, the, the analogy that popped into mind, like, I've literally said this to Natalie before because, you know, like, I'm always complaining, like, you know, when it's time to get dressed or if I'm like, I just, I feel like I don't have anything. I always feel like I don't have anything new or like I'm wearing the same four shirts over and over again, right? And I think we probably all feel that way to some extent. But I've told her, like, my goal is to just, I don't know anything about clothes. Like, I'm not like a fashion person, right? Really? I mean, I, I yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I like what I like, but... I was going to say, you dress nice. Don't get me wrong. Oh, sorry, you dress nice, no, but yeah, I'm you're not, not like I'm not Louis turning, Yeah, and, I'm not yeah. turning any heads due to my outfit, right? And, yeah. and so what I've told her is I'm trying to like minimize the chance that I look at a picture of myself like 10 years from now and go like, <laughs> what was I thinking? Yeah. Like what in the world went through my mind you know, that made me of- think like that outfit? And I think when people fall for that, like the people that that does occur to are people that are trend chasers. They're people that go like, oh, like these crazy style boots are in right now. So I'm going yeah. to get them and wear them, right? But then like three years later, you go like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I ever had those on my body. Right? Yeah. Or you, you, there's all kinds of styles and trends that come and go like that. You know, the investment version of that would be don't build a portfolio, don't have a financial plan, don't set income targets that are reliant on something that is a fad, something that has worked for a very short amount of time and that doesn't have a lot of history behind it and a lot of testing behind it, right? Yeah. So like an index portfolio that's been around for, you know, you could argue a hundred years, right? Now index funds haven't been around for a hundred years, yeah. but that style of investing, broad diversification set, not messing with it too much, it's been around for a long time. So we're betting that no matter what else comes and goes, like that will probably still remain, mm-hmm. right? And if someone does find something that's going to break that that cycle, then we're still going to want to see some decent history before we decide to get on that bandwagon. Yeah, right? I mean, even, so, yeah, exactly. Even get on that bandwagon. And that's to say that all of a sudden index funds fall apart themselves, right? Yeah. Like even if this new whatever it is, is doing well, index funds are also probably doing all right, you know? That's right. So, um, <laughs> and def- R- Renee in the background here, she did point out, which I think is, very, I, I wonder if there's like a study that studies how, I'm sure there is, we need to find it, but how women interact with financial matters as opposed to how men interact. Because she pointed out like, it happens way less to guys in that like our style, we don't, we don't change style, our style, style, style of clothes. By the style way. Of clothes. Yeah, sorry. Well, sorry, I'm pivoting sure. back. Yeah. But this is an interesting point. Like, and I think she's absolutely right. Like I heard, you know, somewhere around 30, like whatever's in style when men are age 30, it's like we just... It's like our, we just go blind. We stop looking around. We stop caring about what clothes are. And we just, if it was cool when we were 30, I'm going to be wearing it when I'm 75. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So oh, I yeah. wonder if there's a corollary there, but I do think that's accurate. That would be an interesting thing. Yeah. Um, it's just another, Yeah. it's unfair. It's unfair that we have it so easy. We just get to put on the same golf polo six days in a row and no one asks us anything about it. <laughs> oh man, I, I wonder how that's going to be taken by a lot of our, our, uh, our listeners. Um, <laughs> no, I'm saying it's unfair. Right. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's not fair for women that they're expected to like change what they're yeah. doing. We're just going, I mean, we uh, can dive into that one a little bit farther if you want. Like, oh, who's putting that, who's putting that on? Is that, is that us putting that expectation on them or is that? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, exactly. So. I have an appreciation for the fact yeah. that what is in today, what's, what's awesome today, what's, at, what's getting headlines or yeah. bubbling to the surface today may not be true tomorrow. And you, yeah. And you really should, and you kind of hit the, the nail on the head with like REITs and crypto, like chasing those extremes mm-hmm. uh, tends to not work out for people. And when you make those changes, um, it tends to not be the, the the best result for your portfolio because like we know, compounding works best when you just let it sit there. That's right. And let it build. Let it do its thing. It is not sexy. It is not 
crazy. It's it's very simple concept. It's very hard because it requires a lot of diligence and perseverance Patient. and through rough times. Um, but that is the truth of the matter. Like compounding, again, is a very simple concept, but it is a very powerful concept. But it takes time. Like the number one ingredient to that thing is time. Uh, so if you can avoid extremes and avoid making all these movements all the time, year to year, or even every three years or more so, um, the, the better off you're probably going to be. Um, so yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself, so I won't try to. Oh, good. Chapter 15, nothing's free. Do you want to tee this one up? You want me to? Actually, uh, go for it. You teed okay. up, you teed up. Well, Let me catch so up here in my notes. Th- this is, this is, I mean, we kind of already touched on it, right? But nothing's free. So there's always a cost. There's always a trade-off. We talk um, a lot about trade-offs with clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think the the biggest one, like, so let's use an example that we're kind of seeing a lot of right now, right? So we get a lot of questions about interest rates are higher. You know, why wouldn't, you know, if markets could be negative over the next year, six months, whatever the case is, why wouldn't I take that money and just plunk it into a CD that's going to get me 5%, right? Mm-hmm. For the next 14 months or 18 months. Okay. I mean, you could certainly do that and you yeah. will guarantee yourself that you will get 5%. Okay. And I can't argue with that. That's a fact. But what I can also suggest, right? And this is where it comes down to you have to make the decision that's right for you. Maybe that is the right decision for someone. Mm-hmm. But I could also very well make the argument that's not the right decision for someone else that's in different circumstance. Because what you may not recognize, right, is first of all, the assumption you're making, which is you're you're predicting the, fu- the market's going to go down. Mm-hmm. Like that's what you're predicting. You may not even have acknowledged you're making that prediction, but you are. Mm-hmm. Now, the market may not go down. The market could rock it up, right? We have a lot of data that suggests on the heels of a large draw, drawdown, markets go up very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. If you do miss that, then in seven months' time, if the market's up 14%, you're going to be really disappointed with that 5%. Yeah. So and that 5% looks really good relative to your assumption of, let's say, negative 5%. And CDs are not liquid. The CDs are not liquid. And so that's the other, the other component of that is not only are you locked into that CD that is lower than the market, you can't access that capital. You've mm-hmm. lost your liquidity for that period of time and you may miss the entire the entire recovery. Yeah. So by the time you get back in, what have you done? You've sold low and now you're having to either extend that cash position for a longer period of time or you're going to have to buy back in at the top. So mm-hmm. those are the kind of things that you don't oftentimes recognize, right? We call that opportunity cost. For yeah. every action that you take, it needs to be the optimal choice because you're foregoing the opportunity of every other available option that you did not take, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. I think as humans, sometimes, and I think it happens most often when we're reacting in fear, when we're, we're mm-hmm. reacting in um, an emotional state rather than an, 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 a rational state, yeah. Yeah. is that you're likely to not factor in all those opportunity costs. Yeah. Does that kind of make oh, sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, we just, it's, it's not a very... Um, I think a very common thing to think of outside of finances is opportunity cost. Cause I didn't really, when I, in my undergrad was not in finances, um, but I never really learned about opportunity costs, but it applies to so much in life, not just finances, but um, obviously very much in finances, uh, but it, it applies to so much and it is so important to think about those things and really, it helps you really weigh the options. Um, yep. But it does make sense. What you're saying makes sense. And um, one of the things that I, I love about this chapter and it really was, and this one, I would argue to say it was probably my favorite chapter. I've, I've talked about this book a lot and how much I love it, but I think this one really changed my um, mindset and view of things when it comes to a down market. Because I think everyone thinks when the market's down and if you have not moved out your money, you have technically not lost anything, mm-hmm. right? You only lose something when you sell. And that is the fee of being in the market. It's this concept of changing it from 
I have to pay this fine of being in the market of when the market's down, I'm fined whatever money I quote unquote lose. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the unrealized lost, loss figure. The unrealized loss figure, yes. But if you change that to being a fee, right? And the fee is more so, not actual money, but more so the emotional and... Um, yeah, the, the the emotional toll it takes on you while the market's down, that's what you have to pay in order to get the higher returns, yep. right? Uh, the 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 more volatile the, the your portfolio is, the more le- the less risk averse your portfolio is, the higher that fee is going to be. But that's something that you need to realize. I love that, man. I've never heard it put that way. Yeah. But I, I love that because yeah. it, then you can look at it in reverse and say, well, so what are the people that that do react in emotions getting, right? They're, yeah. They're getting they're paying the long-term growth. They're, they're paying the fact the odds are against them that they're going to beat the market. Mm-hmm. So let's just say, statistically speaking, they're much more likely to now have a lower return compared to the market than they would have if they had not panicked. But in exchange for that lower expected return now, they're getting that emotional, like what they're telling themselves is, oh, I made the right call. I got out of the bad thing, quote, and into the quote, good thing. Or even if I didn't, you know, even if I just went to cash, I now get to sleep comfortably and I, I don't have to do that emotional, you know, flexing of, yeah. of trying to get through this thing and, and training my mind and my emotions to be able to to stomach that that volatility. Yeah. Um, and and that's I would argue not as good of a trade off, but that is just the same trade off in reverse, right? Yeah. So always just being aware, man. There are trade offs for everything. I'm glad you put it that way. I'm yeah. gonna use well, that. Well, that, that's that's I'm stealing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, give me credit. That's kind of like yeah, the yeah. Michael Scott. Like you miss 100 percent of the shots you never take. Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott. Well, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you didn't come up with the concept, yeah. but but the way of like thinking of it is like you're that is the fee that you're paying for yeah. remaining invested and right? for and not the, panicking. And the thing is, is like when you're paying a fee for something, you're usually getting something in return. When you're paying a fine for something, you've done something wrong, yep. and you're not getting something in return, right? And sure. so that's it's one of those things of like paying the fee, right? This is what it takes in order to get those higher returns to stay in the market to let compounding do its thing to avoid the extremes and let compounding do the, do its thing again. Not sexy. But very simple, and 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 very effective. So I love it. Um, yeah, awesome. All right, man. Well, I think we made a good dent. We've got about four chapters left. Yeah. So I think we're going to cut it there, and we'll come back with a final part four of our review. Uh, we only have four chapters. There's been a lot going on um, over the last couple of weeks while we've been recording these, so we might throw in maybe just a top full, top mm-hmm. full touch here, there at the front or back into that next episode. Um, but as always, Joey Bodinger, nailed it. That was, I, that was good. That was I, good. I appreciate your participation, man. You bring so much to the table. Thank um, you. Renee, thank you as always for your help. Thank you for listening. And uh, we will be back in a couple of days with part four. Sounds good. Awesome. See you guys later. If you have any questions for Adam or Janet concerning this topic or anything else, please visit us at our home on the web, assetbuilder.com slash podcast. There you can find their contact information as well as the show notes for every episode.